So when I was eight years old, uh, my grandmother and my grandfather got me a present in Christmas 1977. And I don't know if you've ever felt a present or looked at a present and wondered what on earth it might be, but this present was in that category. Um, I could not, for the life of me, work out what it was. It had such an odd shape. Uh, and when it was turned, to, you know, when it was time to open presents, um, I opened this thing up, and inside uh, was a new blank stamp album with no stamps in it, and uh, it had there were some tweezers and a magnifying glass. That was kind of one of the odd-shaped things. Uh, there were some stamp hinges, which are like little sticky, foldable bits of clear paper that you can use to stick stamps into a stamp album. Um, there was a, uh, a packet with some stamps on the inside, loose stamps for me to sort through and have a look at. And there was also a copy of the 1975 edition of the Stanley Gibbons stamp catalogue. Okay? Uh, and what this stamp catalogue does, it does is it, you can look up all the different stamps there are in the world and work out the value and where they've come from and all that stuff. Um, so I opened this thing, and as I was opening it, my granddad said to me, he had a particular turn of phrase, he said, Nick lad, he'd always call me Nick lad, he'd say, Nick lad, I used to be uh, somebody who collected stamps myself uh, when I was a small boy, and I thought you might enjoy the same opportunity to collect stamps yourself. And so thus was born a bit of a hobby, collecting stamps. And so my family would kind of get stamps off of letters, they would um, find stamps for me, they'd give me stamps, I'd go around my other nan and granddad's and she'd give me, you know, stamps from, from she'd, letters she'd had. And it was always good to get stamps from foreign countries. And I sent off for stamps, and I built up a bit of a collection. I really enjoyed finding out about all the different countries that stamps represent and come from. Um, and it was great to get sets of stamps and put them all together. So, that, you know, like, there'd be a set, and it would all be in a series, but each one a slightly different color and a slightly different price. And that was kind of quite fun. As I got a little bit older with my stamp collection and it got a bit bigger, I need to confess publicly to you that it didn't bring out, um, well, it brought out a range of different things in me, not all of which were pretty. Can I just say that? Uh, so some of the, some of the, the characteristics ca that came out were, well, I, I was a bit obsessive. You know, if I didn't have a particular stamp in a set, I'd become quite neurotic about it. Um, there was also a boy who lived up the road from me. Um, his name was Jamie, and I happened to mention, this is when I was about nine, I happened to mention that I was into collecting stamps. And he said, oh, yeah, my dad's got a really cool collection. Let me bring it downstairs and show you. And he opened the pages of the stamp collection, and the green-eyed monster in me went, Wow! Look at those stamps, that, oh. And he basically got a lot of great stamps that were, some of them were really, really valuable as well. And I was sitting there, and I, I came face to face with envy uh, through the, the journey in my stamp collecting days. So it's not altogether brought out the prettiest side of me. I've got a confession, another confession to make. I even searched my granddad's flat to find his fabled collection that he said he had. And that's bad, isn't it? You know, and I didn't ever, I've never told anybody that, so that's terrible to confess that <laughs> publicly in that way. But he, he was the guy who set me going, and I thought, ooh, you've got a collection, I'll bet, I'll bet it's good. But I never found it, so there we go. Um, now, not long after I became a follower of Jesus around the age of 32, I actually decided that this, <laughs> this stamp collecting business had too much of a hold on me. Uh, it would produce a slight twinge of sort of annoyance and obsession in me, and I would still be kind of thinking, oh, what if I find something really valuable? And I just gave the whole lot away to another stamp collector in my church uh, who was, didn't have this hold or this stronghold around stamps. 
So he took it off me, and I felt a whole lot freer. I'm just saying that that was a journey for me, okay? But I just want to say that um, back in the day, my pr- it, 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 uh, the way the stamp album worked was that it was organized by countries, but it had Great Britain at the front, so it was biased to Great Britain. And on the first page, page one, in the center, at the top, I had my Pride of Place stamp, which was a penny red stamp. Now, penny red stamps, they're not hugely valuable, but they look pretty good. Uh, And they were the the kind of, after the penny black, which are quite a rare stamp and quite valuable, the penny red was the stamp that got issued most often, really, during Victorian times. Um, I think that there are around 21 billion were printed. That's a lot of stamps, isn't it? Um, And they were printed between 1850 and 1879, and so they're very common to collectors. You're able to pick them up easily on eBay for not very much money. The printing process in those days was that they'd they'd create something called a plate. And a plate was a bit bit bigger than a piece of A4, but it was metal, um, and it had engraved on it Victoria's head, and it had a frame around it and letters and what have you to define where the stamps were in the grid. And the, the printing process would be that the paper would, the, the, the plate would go down on the paper, come up again, and then you'd have a sheet of stamps. And in the early days, they'd have to snip them out with scissors, and then they cottoned on to the idea of having perforations because that made it a bit easier, and so on and so on. Um, now, people collect stamps and they chase after them if they're rare. Um, in 1863, the post office started a print run of penny red stamps using a plate numbered 77. So they'd always number all their plates so they'd know which ones they were using, and they would go up in sequence. And so later penny reds have got much higher plate numbers, and earlier penny reds have much lower plate numbers. So they they started this uh, print run with plate 77, but the plate had a fault, and the printing process did not work properly. One sheet of plate 77 penny red stamps was produced. If you jump into your Uversion app and you look uh, uh, for events and you go to Birmingham City Church, you will find our event live today and you will see a picture of a penny red stamp. And if you look very closely, if you've got a big phone, you might be able to see on the right-hand side, very faintly, there's like little numbers in the margin. It may not be possible for you to see it. They're very faint. Um, So plate 77, there was one sheet of these and the, the, the people who printed them decided to throw them away. However, Apparently, a, a, a limited strip of them, or a, a couple of rows of them, got, take, got used. They got taken away, and, and they, they were put on envelopes and, and, and so on. There were nine that were known of the, at the time, and there are now five in circulation. So that makes plate 77 penny reds the holy grail of stamp collecting. Uh, in, 90, uh, sorry, in 2016, uh, one got sold at auction, and it fetched £495,000. That's a lot of money for a little bit of paper with some red ink on, isn't it? But you see, the point is that there's rarity value, and there's a great story there, and people want to have that in their collection. They're prepared to pay a lot of money. Now, of course, back in the day, I, I, I heard about how rare a plate 77 was because I looked in my Stanley Gibbons catalog and it said, you know, it gave you the plate numbers and a table of prices. And as I was going down, I was like, plate 77, you know, uh, back in those days, it was still like a lot of money. It's like 50,000 pounds. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of money. So I knew about it. So I get my magnifying glass out that I got with my stamp collecting set. And of course, I looked at my prized jewel in my collection on page one of my stamp album, hoping, hoping, hoping that that, that nine in 21 billion chance might be mine. Needless to say, 
It wasn't. It was not a plate 77 penny red. But as a boy, I did have a look. I mean, you'd have done the same thing. Come on, be, be honest with yourselves. You'd have had a quick look, wouldn't you? It wasn't a plate 77, and I just had an ordinary penny red stamps. So auctions to buy stamps like these work on the basis that they are, there are various very wealthy people out there who are competing to own one precisely because it's so unusual and so rare. Um, I would say that the value of something is down to what someone is prepared to pay for it, isn't it? You know, we've got this strange thing in our culture of non-fungible tokens, you know, Bitcoin. You know, a Bitcoin is just a string of numbers. It doesn't mean anything. In itself, it's worthless. But because everybody's decided it's got some worth, there's a huge amount of competition to own a Bitcoin or parts of Bitcoins. Now, the story of this rare edition of this particular stamp kind of got me thinking. I started thinking quite a lot, and it, it kind of leads into where I'm going today. There are lots and lots of people on the planet. Just as, the, just as there are 21 billion uh, penny reds printed, we've got around about 8 billion people on the planet. Uh, and that number of people is really escalating. I was quite shocked to, to discover that there's, there was only 3 billion people on the planet in 1960. Um, and so in sort of 60 years or so, we've kind of gone more than twice as large. That's really quite a big thing. That's uh, a dramatic increase since then. But the point is that although there are so many of us, each of us is completely irreplaceable. We are unique. You know, there isn't a kind of nine version edition of us as a print run. You know, there's not nine Kevins or nine Nicks or nine Leandros, you know, that, that, are, that are circulating around that people are vying over to bid over. It's not like that. There's only one of you and there's only one of me. And that makes us irreplaceably valuable and irreplaceably precious. Uh, we're, we're not kind of in a, you know, uh, in, in a kind of competition with lots of other people in that sense. There's only one edition of you. There's only one edition of me. And that means that our rarity value and our, the value of who we are is kind of off the scale. It's not measurable. Uh, it, you can't put a price on a person. And I want to go from that thought and lead into another idea or, or ask a big question from that idea this morning. So given that we have complete rarity as a one-of-a-kind soul and that we're a never-to-be-repeated instance of personhood, what price might God be prepared to pay to have one of us? What price do you think God might be prepared to pay to keep one of us? In other words, um, let, let's put that in a slightly different way. If we were up for grabs in a spiritual auction, what kind of bidding would God be putting in to win us? And what would he bid? How would he pay? That's a big question. Let's recap for just a moment and take stock of where we are in our sermon series. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been blessed to have a couple of guest speakers, haven't we? We had Daniel Roth uh, from Colorado Springs Church uh, kind of two Sundays ago. Uh, and he came, came and brought us a message and said, how can you hear from God? Very helpful message. If you didn't get a chance to, to hear that message, I'd really recommend you watch that on YouTube. And then last week, we had Kevin Pete. Kevin Pete is one of our ex-national leaders in Elam. And he brought a great message on the incredible hands of God. What an awesome, awesome message he brought. Uh, so, so helpful and moving. Uh, it's really great to have him with us. But prior to that, in September and October, we were doing a series called The Cross, an eight-week series which we started at the beginning of, the, of September, uh, which is basically my contention is that the cross is hugely central to the Christian faith. 
absolutely core to it. Uh, and each Sunday we've covered, sub, we, we opened with a, a, a sub, the, the title primacy, meaning centrality or importance. And then we've looked at scandal, iniquity, justice. Uh, at Harvest Festival, we talked about scapegoat and we had, a, we had an actual goat in the service and we sellotaped sins to the goat and off the goat went. And then we looked at Passover and the, the last of the ones that we talked about blood, um, we unpacked how Jesus' blood covers seven different areas of our lives. Uh, the seven areas will begin with P, our purpose, our privacy, our past, our person, our productivity, our place, and our passion. So that was where we'd got up to. Now we're going to resume the cross series, and we've got three more messages in it to get to uh, the end of uh, November, to, to, to Christmas. And this message today is called Price. It's called Price because I want to try and understand or get my head round what was the price that God was prepared to pay for us to be in his spiritual stamp album, as it were, if you go with that idea? You know, it says in Revelation that we've got, you know, our names are written of the book of life. Well, maybe stretch the analogy a bit and imagine that your, your face, your person, is like a stamp that's been stuck in God's stamp album, and he wants you in it. And he's done some bidding to have you there. And I want to understand what that cost him, and we're going to look at that. Uh, right now. So um, to try and understand that, I, I don't know about you, but I'm someone that really quite enjoys a graphic. I like a picture. I like to draw something out and see if I can create a diagram or a schema out of it. Uh, and so what I've done is I've done a, I've done a, a graphic. That the, the guys will put that up on the, the screen, and hopefully you can see that. It's also in your version notes. Um, it's called, some, I've called it the scale of value. And it's just a, an attempt to try and understand what value, what kind of values do things have? And I've, it goes from the bottom up, and as the bars go wider and wider as you go up, I'm trying to show more and more value on the things concerned. And I'm, I'm kind of okay if you kind of say to me, Pastor Nick, I'm not sure I completely agree with your breakdown here, and we could have a discussion about that. I'm, I'm good with that. This is me just attempting to try and think around the subject. But we might, stop, we might start at the bottom with the stamp. You know, the, 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 the penny red stamp, the really rare stamp that's worth nearly half a million pounds. Uh, that would be pretty cool if you found one of those. Um, and then we would go to, like, you know, really, really wealthy people. You know, I, I'm thinking back to biblical times. You know, Solomon is kind of like the modern, uh, sorry, the, the biblical version of Elon Musk, isn't he? Although I think Elon Musk isn't really a Christian, is he? Um, but he was, you know, they're both incredibly wealthy men. Um, Solomon's wealth was described in quite big terms. You know, the, uh, the, the Queen of Sheba went to visit him, and she was like, she'd heard about his wealth, and then when she went to visit, she was like, whoa, it's true. What everybody says, you really are very, very wealthy. And then we get into, well, that's just one person's wealth, but what about all the wealth of the world? Have you ever thought about that? You probably haven't lying awake at night thinking, you know, laying awake at night thinking how many diamonds there are waiting to be mined, or how much gold there is. Maybe, maybe you have. I don't know. Um, but there's a lot of wealth and resources in the world, isn't there? There's a lot of stuff in the world that God's put there that has value or that we ascribe value to. And so the world has a lot of wealth, a lot of uh, stuff with it. But then we can kind of say, well, what about the wealth of the cosmos? Because we're just one planet. What about all the stars and the galaxies and the other planets that exist? You know, I'm the kind of person that kind of likes the idea that there might be a planet made of copper. 
you know, we could kind of maybe go there one day and mine it for copper and bring all the copper back, or that there might be a, a planet made of something that's really good for rechargeable batteries, you know, like you're, we're going down that path with cars, electricity, and that there's a substance out there in the universe that can be charged up fully in, in, in 10 seconds, and then it gives you 800 miles on your car. I mean, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? Well, maybe not, I don't know. Um, but, that, you know, the, the, the cosmos has a lot of stuff in it. A lot of material wealth, a lot of assets to it, to put it bluntly. But then we have to make a transition from stuff to things that have life. Because in the hierarchy of valuable things, stuff that has life always has more value than stuff that doesn't. Inert things don't have as much value as alive things. And so in thinking this through, I was thinking, well, what's next up the pecking order? Well, I think it's probably an angelic being. I mean, I've not included animals and all the rest of it, and you might want to make a case for that. But I think in spiritual terms, an angelic being is probably next up the, the ladder in terms of value because it's a created being, a, a, a being created by God. And I've put it there because I, um, I'm aware of a verse in 1 Corinthians 6.3 where Paul says, uh, don't you know that we will judge angels how much more matters of this life? And the implication is that we are worth more than angels and we, are, we have more dominion than angels when we get to heaven. That's what seems to be being suggested there. And so maybe there's a little bit of a hierarchy there. Although when you read the account in Isaiah 6 of the seraphim doing their thing and coming and touching Isaiah with the coal, I'm kind of thinking, maybe you're above us. I don't know. That, that's, a, that's a big thought, uh, and perhaps for another sermon. And then we get into this concept of what's the worth of a human being? What is the value that we might place on a person? And when I was doing this diagram, I kind of went, it kind of went sort of like this, you know, just in a kind of smooth grade, and, and, the, and a person was set slightly less wide than Jesus. And I spent about an hour thinking about that while I was loading the dishwasher. And I was like, right, is that true? Can I say that a person is worth less than Jesus? And, you know, there's verses maybe to suggest that you might think that way, you know, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Philippians chapter 2, well, you know, Jesus is the king of the universe, and we're kind of just people. Not that I'm minimizing people, but there, maybe is there a hierarchy there of value and worth? I don't know. And then I started thinking, well, no, hold on a minute. Jesus was someone who came to seek and save the lost and to confer value on them. And actually, he washed his disciples' feet. He had no sense of hierarchy like that. He came to serve people, and he came to love people, and he came to be with people. One of his names is Emmanuel, God with us. And so I started to think, I started to lean more towards the idea that actually we're kind of brothers and sisters to Jesus, who is our older brother spiritually, but we all belong in the family of God in heaven. We're all citizens of heaven, and we all have the same value to Jesus. So I don't know what you think about that, but I kind of ended up with it being kind of the same. And then I had another thought while I was uh, loading the final layer of the dishwasher, that actually that maybe there's a journey of discipleship that puts us in the, in the same category as Jesus. Now, before you accuse me of heresy, what I'm saying is that there's a, every possibility if we follow Jesus diligently and wholeheartedly and unreservedly, we can become so like him that we are indistinguishable in holiness from him. That's a process called sanctification. That's the, that's the journey of making someone more and more holy as they get more and more like Jesus. And so there's every case to say that perhaps early on in life, we're kind of that bar is a little bit thinner in terms of the quality of who we are. 
And as we get older and a bit more sharp about following, and uh, following Jesus and a bit more on our toes about making sure we're, we're doing the things he's asking us to do, you know, that, that we're obeying his words, over time, that bar ends up being the same. Then we have the top bar. And you could make a great case for the blood of Jesus to be the subset of who he is because someone's blood is a subset of who they are. It's not their totality. And yet Jesus, that cost Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross, him to shed his blood uh, and for his body to, bro- to be broken, as we, we heard Den bring for us during communion, that was a massive cost for him to do that. And so we're already looking at a person who is kind of premium worth in the cosmos then deciding to give something of himself in a very sacrificial way, which cost him. So my my contention is that the blood of Jesus is the most valuable thing in the whole of everything. How you might describe it, in heaven and on earth, under the earth, everywhere. Because it's something that he gave that was costly. It was the price he paid for us to be in God's stamp album, if you will extend the analogy. So that's a, that's a, a, a you, you know, you could think about this for a long time. I don't know if you're the kind of person that's wired that way to ponder these things. I find myself that I am. Maybe it's one of the reasons I've become a pastor. I kind of think these things through and go, oh, how does that work? Like you might want to say, well, where would the word of God sit in this list? And I, I, I originally had the word of God in here, and I had it between the wealth of the cosmos and an angelic being because I was like, where does, where does God's word sit? The physicality of the, you know, we've got our Bible over there. The physicality of that, is a, it is an object, it's a printed object, but it's, and you can hold it. So it's not got life in the sense of a physical object, but what it represents is massive, massive life. Huge power from God. A gateway into tremendous life and resurrection power. So where does that sit? That's something to just ponder uh, over your Sunday lunch if you want to. I want to take you to a very key verse in one of Peter's letters, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. Do jump there on your devices or in your Bibles. Um, this is a key verse because it defines what happens uh, with this idea of value and price just a little bit more clearly. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says this, For you know that you were redeemed from your, way, uh, your, your empty way of life, sorry, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Let me just read that to you again. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Peter's saying to the people he's writing to, that you had something handed down to you from your family system, from your ancestry, from, uh, from the people who came before you, that was an empty way of life. But, uh, uh, and then you got given something by Jesus rescuing you, which was new life, eternal life, freedom from sin and death, and it was obtained for you by an enormous price of his blood. But it wasn't uh, something perishable. It's Jesus' blood. It's not... Uh, silver and gold. Silver and gold don't carry any weight in the economy of God. Now, clearly, in our world, they do have value. I'm not minimizing that. And we've got to be good stewards of of wealth. But it's not something... This isn't something that can be bought with a price of money in that way. 
This isn't something I can give you gold bars for to go and buy, and then you are redeemed from your sins. That doesn't work. The only thing that does work is the blood of Christ. Um, there's a story of a kind of a complete mismatch and an understanding where a guy says to somebody, listen, I, I really, you know, he, he says to his minister, I want to, when I get into heaven, I want to make sure that I take my gold with me. And the minister says, well, it's not going to happen. You're going to leave it behind. But he, as he dies, he insists that he's going to be able to take at least one gold bar with him. And when he gets to heaven and, uh, and they open the gate, uh, they let him in. And then somebody in heaven says, uh, why, have you, why have you got a bit of payment, pavement with you? And the thing is that they, they pave heaven with gold. And what he's done is he's tried to take a piece of pavement into heaven with, and it's gold. So th- there's a mismatch there. The idea that you can carry material wealth into a spiritual place doesn't make any sense because certain things that are paid for spiritually cannot be paid for with material money, with, with physical money. It's something totally different. And in this verse, we see that Peter is explaining how this is done through the precious blood of Christ. Let me explain for a moment what that word redeemed there means. Redeems mean, redeem means to set free by paying a full ransom. The picture we have is that there are people in some kind of captivity and bondage, and a ransom is paid, and then they're set free. And they're not in captivity or bondage anymore. And we've heard of stories on the news, haven't we, where people have been, um, you know, uh, kidnapped and then a big ransom's demanded of them. Sometimes this is unfortunately, you know, t- t- rich, richer people are targeted for this. I remember there was a guy who used to run that company Phones For You. I can't remember his name, but he was a very senior guy. He had a very, very wealthy guy and a, and a really kind of hard gang of four people broke into his house and held him ransom and demanded a load of money. And actually in the end, they paid the money and then they got away with the money. Um, so a, when a ransom gets paid, you're then set free. Anyone here remember the story of a lady called Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe? Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe. Now, she was a lady who had dual citizenship of both Britain and Iran. And uh, she traveled to Iran in April 2016, and uh, she got detained and put in, put in prison for five years, and there were false charges brought against her. And these charges were that she was uh, operating with treason. She was trying to bring the um, Iranian government uh, into disrepute and to topple them. Uh, by spreading disinformation about them. Now, that wasn't true. She, she wasn't guilty of those things, and she always maintained her innocence. Yet, nevertheless, she spent five years in an Iranian prison. Um, uh, now, if you trace the story behind the story, uh, you'll, you'll kind of uncover why this happened a little bit more. Um, they say, you know, follow the money to try and understand the story, and this is exactly what's happened here. Um, in the 1970s, there was a ruler of Iran, uh, and they called the, their, their name for a president or a prime minister is the Shah, if you like. It was the Shah of Iran. And uh, he was um, uh, very interested in buying uh, several hundred chieftain tanks from the British army. And they paid uh, the money to buy the chieftain tanks. And then the Shah of Iran got toppled from power. I think it was in 1979 he, got, he lost power. And um, the, the, the fulfillment of the order by the, the Ministry of Defense here in Britain went up to the point of, okay, we've sent you some of the tanks, but the rest of the tanks, now you've been toppled from power, we're going to keep your money and you're not going to get them. 
So to be honest, that's not a great thing to do because it's not fair. You've stolen a whole bunch of money off somebody who's buying something from you. And ever since that point, Iran have had a bone of contention with Britain about that missing money. And to be fair, rightly so. That's not a good thing to have, to have done to them. So when uh, uh, Nazanin uh, Zaghari Ratcliffe arrives in Iran, the Iranian authorities, using a wrong method but with a right principle, um, basically say, we're going to keep you in prison until the British government pay us back. And that's exactly what they did. And so in the end, what happened was uh, Britain paid Iran, uh, I think it was nearly 400 million pounds that they owed that country, and she was released overnight. And she came back on a plane the next day and found that she was free in the streets of London and had no charges against her. She wasn't in prison anymore. The ransom had been paid. She was set free. Now, that's not a completely clean analogy because actually <laughs> we'd stolen a bunch of money off the Iranians and that's not right. If it were a clean story, it would be simply money given and uh, something redeemed back. But you get the idea. Money, a, a price is paid and someone is, is brought into freedom as a result of that. And that's what happens with uh, Jesus' blood on the cross. He pays a price for you and I and then we're brought into freedom from uh, bondage to sin and death, and we are then set free, and we don't have that over us anymore. Did you know that that struggle you have with sin in your life actually can be beaten now? Before you were a follower of Jesus, you may have struggled perpetually around the same kinds of issues and not succeeded. I've got news for you. You can succeed now. You might feel like you can't, but actually you can because the blood of Jesus has brought you out of being stuck in bondage to that slavery. You are now completely free. You are genuinely and fully free. And we all, I think a lot of us as Christians struggle to walk in that freedom. It's a bit like uh, Nazanin kind of wandering back to Iran and wanting to still be in jail there. That kind of doesn't make any sense. And yet our behavior as Christians is, let's be honest, we sometimes do that, don't we? We kind of trot off back to that place we know so well, and we're back in prison again. We're back in slavery again because we haven't fully believed what it says in Romans 6, that you now, sin now no longer has any power over you. You have been purchased with the blood of Christ, and now you're set free. You are fully free. I just want to unpack uh, three things briefly just before we get back to a time of worship of the implications of being set free or having a price paid for you. And they're these three things, freedom, belonging, and worth. Your freedom was created for you by Jesus on the cross. You are a free person. If you're someone sitting here today who's decided to follow Jesus in their hearts, and I know a vast percentage of us in this room are, are that, you are completely free. Just think about that for a minute. You are totally free. You are not subject to anything. You're not subject to sin. You're not subject to death. You're not subject to uh, wrongful imprisonment. Now, in the worldly authorities, there may be things you're battling with, but in terms of your spirit, you are 100% free because Jesus has made it that way by what he paid for you on the cross with his blood. We took um, a funeral this week from a gent called Frank Whittingham, who had been our oldest member at 96. And he, as part of his eulogy, I was able to bring some of the stories that he uh, shared with me about his, his uh, time in the war. He was somebody who was uh, in, the, in the Second World War in 1944. 
uh, and he fought in, uh, in, uh, in uh, the Netherlands uh, at a place called Nijmegen, Nijmegen Bridge, just a, the bridge down from the very famous bridge called Arnhem Bridge, which was featured in that 1977 war film, A Bridge Too Far. And he fought there, and he took some shrapnel in his leg, and he was brought back to Birmingham and then went over to Leicester, and he spent a long time recovering from that. And I think he still had some shrapnel in his leg that they couldn't remove because it was too dangerous. He was someone who paid a price in order for freedom to happen. He paid a price, and he, he even said to me one time, I, I kind of don't really understand the world. It seems to have gone to pot. They don't understand the price that was paid for the freedom they now enjoy. Galatians 5.1 says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and don't submit yourselves to a yoke of slavery. One of the implications of Jesus' blood being shed for you on the cross is that you're now fully free, so walk in it. Don't trot back to that place of imprisonment through the habits that you might have had in the past. The second thing is that if you, if you can imagine that you've been bought by God and you, now, you are now kind of in his spiritual stamp album and you, you, you belong to his collection. God has you in, in, his, in his pages. You belong. You're, you're part of what, what he envisaged um, when, when he permitted Jesus to go to the cross. You belong now. You're part of his collection. You're part of his family. You're not on the outside. There's a lovely story in the Old Testament, too long to unpack in detail now, but it's effectively a, a lady called Ruth. Uh, she's kind of on the outside of the society she finds herself in, and um, a, a, a Jewish man named Boaz is attracted to her, but he can't marry her because there's a, somebody called a family redeemer. And the family redeemer is somebody who would... Uh, kind of pay the right price and the right money and bring someone into a family. So he goes and sees the family redeemer. And he says, if you don't want to marry this lady, I would really like to. Uh, and this, this other chap says, even though I'm first in line to kind of um, marry her under the Jewish system of re redemption, you have her. You, please go ahead and marry her. It's one of the most romantic stories in the Old Testament. It's a great, great story. Um, uh, but he redeems her. And so she belongs to him. And it's like a picture of what Jesus does for us on the cross, that we are redeemed and we therefore belong to Jesus. We belong to the Holy Spirit. We belong to God. If you are a follower of Jesus today, you belong to God. You are a citizen of heaven. You belong in your hearts. You belong. I'm going to ask the worship team just to come back. The last thing is that you have worth. Imagine the feeling if someone paid that level of money to get you back from Iran. 400 million pounds. Now, I understand there was a debt and a wrangle and all the rest of it, but that lady must feel pretty good that the government was prepared to spend that level of money to get her back. If someone's paid a ransom for you, do you know what? You've got to feel good about that. That's a good thing. That shows you that that person held you in high worth and worth paying for. And by extension, Jesus thinks we're worth paying for. Jesus is at that spiritual stamp album auction saying, I'm prepared to put the bid on you, and it's not money and, and, and gold and silver. It's my own blood that's going to pay to secure you to come in. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You were bought at a price. Therefore, you have worth because Jesus paid a price for you. You have worth. We have freedom because of the blood of Jesus. We belong because of the blood of Jesus. And we have worth because of the blood of Jesus. Would you stand with me this morning?
our worship team are going to lead us in a worship song. And if you want to come down to the front during this worship song and just declare some things to Jesus, I'm just going to invite you to do that. Nobody's going to think that's weird. That's part of our culture here in this church to do that. You are really welcome to just make your way to the front and spend some time talking to Jesus. If you're someone that needs to to say to Jesus, you're worthy, Jesus. Thank you for what you did for me with your blood on the cross. And just make your way to the front. It's great to thank Jesus for that. If you're someone that's just kind of grateful that you belong because you're in God's family, just come and say, Jesus, I'm so glad that I belong. And if you're someone that just needs that gentle reminder that you are worth it, that there is, there is worth that you have because of what Jesus did for you, and you've just been freshly reminded of that today, come to the front and tell him that. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, team.